Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with code name Zibby20 for a limited time. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the podcast featuring interviews with writers of all types. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Nene's Treats. That's N-E-N-E-S treats.com, a family-owned and operated crumb cake business based in Charleston, South Carolina, which my in-laws have a little bit to do with. Uh, that's Nene's treats.com. Get your crumb cakes on Nene's treats.com or Gold Belly and enjoy. Hi, I'm excited to be here today with Ingrid Fatel lee who is a joy expert. She started as a design director at IDEO, a global innovation firm, and was a founding faculty member at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. She's been featured in the New York Times, Wired, and Fast Company, among others. Apparently, last year's TED Talk got her a standing ovation. Yes? <laughs> um, the mini version of the TED Talk, which everybody listening should go to YouTube and watch, has 12 million views online, and it will brighten up your day. With a master's in industrial design from Pratt Institute and a bachelor's in English and creative writing from Princeton University, Ingrid has established herself as a leader in the design field. Her popular blog, The Aesthetics of Joy, showcases her work and ideas, and she currently lives in Brooklyn. So welcome, Ingrid. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I have to say, I had a case on IDEO at my business school, and I thought it was like the coolest company ever. It is. It must cool. have been. It is. It's an amazing place. Yeah. yeah you come really up is. with just innovative ideas, or what does it do? Uh, so, yeah, IDEO is an innovation, design and innovation company, and uh, works across disciplines. So, um, you know, everything from designing medical devices to redesigning the way that an, an entire education system works. Um, so, applying the ideas of design, the methods of design to some of the world's biggest challenges. Yeah, awesome. Um, so how, can you tell listeners how you stumbled upon this sort of life-changing idea, which is the premise for your book, that joy, and I should have said the book is called Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. So how um, how did you come across this idea that, that these, joy is not a fleeting feeling, but really... It can be, you know, you take over. You sure, know. <laughs> sure. So uh, I wasn't looking for this. You know, this is something that sort of happened to me almost by accident. So I was in a design review. I was in my first year of design school, and I had just finished that first year. And at the end of the first year, um, they do this review where they make you take everything that you've made over the course of the year and sort of set it out so the professors can give you feedback on it. And um, 
it is sort of this uh, grueling, you know, you prepare and you prepare and you lay everything out and you're so nervous. Um, and I think the bar for like a good one of those reviews is like, if you don't leave in tears, you know, <laughs> it's like, what's like a good one. So uh, I was standing there and of course really nervous and terrified. And then one of the professors says, your work gives me a feeling of joy. And this is not obviously but also like that's weird I mean there was there were a lot of feelings all at once the first one was like joy isn't that like light and fluffy and I left you know a pretty serious career in branding to come back as you know uh, years out of school to like come back and do a, a degree in design and you're telling me that I made joy like you know maybe that's I sort of felt like it was a little. Um, not serious. And what I wanted to be doing was serious, you know, really solving serious problems. And so I was a little thrown. Um, but I was also curious because, you know, we think about joy as this intangible, ephemeral feeling. And it's kind of this thing that I think we are almost passive to, you know, it, it sort of drifts by us and we can catch it as it floats past, but that's really our main relationship to it. And so when this professor said, you know, that there were these tangible things and it was like a cup and a lamp and a stool and like, how did those things create a feeling of, of this sort of lofty and ephemeral joy? And so I asked them and they couldn't answer the question. Mm. And this sort of sent me off on this journey and um and looking at the things like if yeah. I were standing there looking at it yeah would I, would I be able to see what they were talking about or were you completely blindsided by this comment I was pretty blindsided by the comment because I had not tried to create joy obviously right. I was trying to make serious things so you know for example the stool like what did they cut? Yeah, what so did the stool was designed to be to help people with balance issues it had foam and sort of layers of foam and it, it moved you know and now that I mean uh, the other thing is, like, you have to remember first year of design school, nothing looked very good. Okay. You know, so the professors were sort of, like, um, seeing things that maybe, you know, I, I I mean, I don't even have good pictures of them, which is funny because, you know, you're so embarrassed <laughs> right. of the yeah. first things you make in school um, that, you know, you don't even save the photos. You're just like, oh, that was terrible, you know. Um, but... Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, the, it was designed to help people with balance issues sort of improve their core strength, okay. right? But it had all these layers of colored foam that, yeah. I guess, is what gave it the feeling of looking joyful. But the, but it was really a byproduct of the utilitarian goal that I had, you know? So, um, yeah, it wasn't on purpose. So then you went out and decided to try to find all these experts, or what came next? So what came next was, um, obviously, I went to the library. Um, you know, I was supposed to be on summer I vacation. Say, I would not say that was obvious. <laughs> I, didn't, I, did, I was not expecting that. To okay, next, so the okay. first thing I did, I went to the library, you know, and I thought, okay, um, let me go to the design section and see if there's anything about how to create happiness and how to create joy. And how, yes, and yeah. how, how, how do those things connect? And, of course, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, people's opinions, but there's nothing like grounded in science. Okay. Um, and then I go to the happiness section and I'm like, okay, let's look in psychology. Let's see if, you know, what is there that might have to do with the physical world? And, and there's nothing there because psychology is this very inward looking discipline. It's all about what's going on inside of us, our minds, our behaviors, um, our attitudes, all of those things. Um, and now obviously our neurochemistry and all of that, but nothing about the physical world. It's almost like that is just completely incidental to the field of 
psychology. And so, you know, it became this effort of trying to piece together all of the research out there. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was the sort of, that was the first thing. So I recognized there was a gap. And so I started just by talking to people. And I went out and I like stood out in the middle of Rockefeller Center and I just started asking people, tourists, people on their lunch breaks, what brings you joy? And I started to gather... Did you have a little table on the street? No. I just, it was just me and a clipboard. You and a clipboard. Yeah. And people stopped. Trying to look official. Wow. Um, I'm yeah. impressed. <laughs> yeah. I'm impressed. Yeah. That's... that's yeah. Yeah, it's, um, just you a know, bold move in yeah. New York City. But you know, when you're talking to people about joy, it's a lot easier because right. most people um, are happy to talk about joy. Uh, they're a little reserved yeah. at first, and then when you're right. like, "I just want to talk to you about joy," yeah. you know, that's it. Yeah. Um, it's actually a lot easier. Huh. So um, I started making lists of the things that people would say, and some of the things were personal, you know. And we all have these sort of individual things that are quirky, and you know, it's like the T-shirt from the Fish Show from ten years ago that was like, <laughs> you know, have great memories of it, and no one else would understand why that's joyful um and then there are cultural things you know things like um foods and sports teams and things like that that have to do with where we grew up and you know they're very specific they're grounded in place or in a sort of a group of people and then there was this other set of things that was not explained by either of those factors and they were things like you know balloons and bubbles and cherry blossoms and uh tree houses and those things were kind of not limited to one group of people. Um, they cut across lines of age and gender and ethnicity, and um, it began to seem like they were universally joyful. And I would start to look at you know other cultures and see, for example, kites. You know, kites are everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and we've people on every continent fly kites. Um, and so, you know, what is it about these these certain pleasures that are so universal? Um, and so I started putting pictures of them up on my wall to try to see if I could understand. An actual physical wall, not yes. like the Pinterest. No, okay. it was before Pinterest. Okay. It was before Pinterest. It was, you know, in the days of Flickr and Google Images. <laughs> that was how you found images back then. And, um, yeah, no, I had a physical wall in my studio. It was like a um, a linen-covered uh, sort of inspiration board, and I just used, you know, thumbtacks, and I just would sort of put these images up and then move them around and move them around and try to see if I could um, spot something that you know, some common thread. Um, Because I think as a designer, you want to understand not just that these things exist, but how to actually make more of this. You know, Mm -hmm. designers always want to put more of something into the world if it's good. Um, And I wanted to understand what that essence was. And what I noticed was that there were these physical patterns. Um, So, you know, bright color, um, round things, um, you know, a, a sense of lightness or elevation. And uh, as I looked at these patterns, they sort of emerged from the wall. I realized that there are physical, you know, joy is intangible and ephemeral, but there are ways, there are triggers, physical triggers that sort of elicit um, that joy uh, within us. And um, and that is sort of a bridge between the physical world around us and the emotional world within us. And so I started calling these things aesthetics of joy um, because all of them were aesthetic elements. And uh, I found 10 of them. And so there are 10 of these patterns. And that's what the book is based on is these 10 patterns. But when you first started researching this and you're there yeah. with your linen board and everything, yeah. was it just to be a better designer or were you trying to make it into some sort of project for 
your design school or yeah. was what were you like, oh I'm working on a dissertation about you know what I mean? Yeah, well like, it, was it it became my master's thesis. Okay. But at first it just became this sort of area of curiosity for me where I was like, I'm gonna see if I can decode this because this is just it wouldn't leave me alone. You know, it was one of those questions that wouldn't leave me alone. And I was fortunate that I had to do a thesis. Right. Um, and so it was like a perfect occasion to spend, you know, a year dedicated to researching this topic. I was going to say, it would be pretty hard to just, I was just imagining like the, this pursuit of information with no deadline. Like, I feel like that takes, yes. it can be harder. The than, deadline was very helpful. Okay, so, right, yeah. so there was some structure to it from the beginning. Definitely. Right? Yeah. And then, of course, you know, um, I uh, started working at IEO right after this. So I, oh, been, I worked that. on it on the side, this project. So when did you do rent? Give me, like, the 10-second the bio here. So you went to college. Yeah. I then went you to went college. to worked in branding. I worked in uh, yeah market research and branding. I lived in Sydney for two years and then I, I came back from Sydney and I knew at that point that I wanted to be a designer. I didn't know exactly how I would get there because I had no design experience. So um, I started applying to design schools and started, you know, making things myself to try to uh, show that, you know, taking drawing classes and things like that to sort of improve my tangible skills. And I ended up um, get you know getting into Pratt, um, and so I started. I went there, um, and then I left Pratt the day that I presented this work as my thesis. I got the offer to join IDEO, and so I spent six years at IDEO. And all along the, the time that I was at IDEO, I was working on this on mornings and, and weekends. And wow, yeah. And Were then, you trying to bring this into? these concepts into your work at IDEO? Yeah, to some extent, yes. Um, there were, you know, there are always intersections and places right. that you can infuse that. Um, but it's also, you know, you are um, trying to find the, you know, I was still trying to sort of develop the principles. And so at times there would be opportunities to test that. I think the biggest thing that helped me during that period was I spent a lot of time in people's homes um, and in their workplaces and in call centers. And, you know, because I was doing um, a lot of ethnographic research, so I was seeing how people lived. And so in a way I was sort of seeing um, I talk a little bit about uh, the lack of joy in some of the places that we spend a lot of our time, that these aesthetics of joy are very, you know, um, present in certain places, but really absent in others. And the workplace is one of the places that it's really absent. And so spending a lot of time with people in their cubicles and in their conference rooms and in their, um, you know, at, at call centers and, and out in the field, you know, with people uh, who have more... Um, like out in the world kinds of jobs, you see that um, that joy is missing, and so that was sort of a, a like a it raised the importance of this for me. Huh. Yeah, in your TED uh, in the TED talk, you showed all these slides of all these happy things like balloons and confetti and whatever and you know bubbles and happiness and color, and then your next slide is of like these drab hallways and office conference rooms and you're like why do we live exactly. why do we live like this why do we live like this and there I mean there are reasons you what, know what are the reasons yeah. I mean the reasons have to do with the fact that we are as a culture we sort of suppress joy we hold ourselves back from joy and the reason is that you know we sort of feel like joy is something we're supposed to grow out of as we get older so um, children are given free reign to be playful and joyful and then as we get older we sort of feel like we have to grow up and set that aside um, and uh, uh, you know, we we, I mean, to exhibit joy in our culture as adults, um, to wear a lot of bright color and to be playful and silly um, is 
often judged as childish or um, superficial or um, self-indulgent. You know, I mean, I know a lot of women who like don't or who don't want to buy themselves flowers because they feel like it's self-indulgent. You know. <laughs> By the way, after I read that chapter, <laughs> I was walking home from dropping off my daughter at school and passed like Lenox Hill florist, and I was like. I can, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to go in and buy flowers for no reason. Right. And I bought them, and they have been, like, the, the highlight of my week. Every time I walk by, I'm like, those are the flowers I bought for no reason. Look how beautiful. <laughs> and I smile, and then I keep going. So I've been thinking of you a lot. <laughs> that's wonderful. And I'll show them to you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that is, and, and, and um, that is a, a much deeper equation, you know, that sort of runs deep in our culture. So if you look at uh, Gota and his theory of colors, he says, you know, savage nations, uneducated people, and children have a, a predilection for bright colors, and, and people of refinement try to avoid bright colors as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So this equation between, you know, um, the visual signs of joy and uh, to be ignorant, mm-hmm. to be, um, you know, immature sure um to be primitive and savage you know um that is uh it sort of has colonialist era Mm -hmm. overtones um but that is a a sort of a kind of baggage that has followed us um, into the present day and so when you look at the world that we have built we've built a world that um sort of separates joy out from the rest of life so there are sort of circumscribed spaces for joy um we have joy in parks Mm -hmm. we have joy in playgrounds we have joy in uh, you know, amusement parks and uh, resorts, hotels and resorts, and pretty much everywhere else is designed for function only, and that means mm-hmm. it's gray, it's beige, um, it doesn't have any embellishment or ornamentation. Um, maybe uh, houses of worship are like the only other place that sort of has uh, is designed for joy and a kind of transcendence. Um, but generally speaking, most of the places we spend most of our time are are sort of the joy has been stripped out of them. Hmm. Sad. It is. It's so sad. It is. And, you know, and when I started looking at those images, um, in fact, um, when I um, was doing the TED Talk, I almost choked up at that point um, because it is really sobering to see it. And I think it's especially sobering to see it uh, when you look at it, it's I think it's the worst in the places where people have no choice but to be. So, you know, nursing homes and hospitals, um, Mm -hmm. people who have no, uh, you know, and housing projects and and homeless shelters, those kinds of places um, where, you know, people are, uh, you know, they have limited mobility um, or they're down on their luck and they don't have a lot of options. And uh, there's almost like a we feel like we have to deserve joy or we have to earn joy. And so we sort of don't put it into those places because those places are designed for purely for function. And I think it really harms now that I understand the, the research, now that I understand the connection between our environment and our emotional well-being you can see that it's sort of a self-perpetuating thing, that by stripping that out of the environment, we're also stripping a lot of the things that suggest life, that suggest vibrancy, and that make people, you know, excited to to get up in the morning and uh, live. So, yeah. I want to go into the 10 different, um, you know, components of joy, but do you think... Like, do you think people would be receptive? Have you found that people are receptive? Like, your book was so inspiring to me, and I was like... I think I'm going to go talk to the headmaster. I shouldn't say this, but I want to talk to the headmaster at the kids' school because we just did this huge yeah. renovation and it's now completely colorless. Yeah. Like if they had you come in and present, like would would that 
you know, are people open to this idea? Have you seen, like, if you if you give them factual evidence? Or are they still just like, nah? I think there are some people who are open. I think seeing stories like um, the story of public color and, you know, what they've done in New York City schools where mm-hmm. they go in into these neglected school districts and they transform these schools with vibrant color and, you know, they find that graffiti disappears and attendance improves and that kids and teachers both say they feel safer in these buildings. Um, I think when you start to see results like that, um, I think color is probably one of the trickiest ones. It's a difficult one to measure. I think there's much better um, studies on things like light um, Mm -hmm. and the quality of light in schools that is actually directly connected to educational performance. Um, So nature performance. And you said also... in the 1980s, a group of patients with gallbladder surgery recovered faster. The, pe- the patients who were facing trees recovered faster and needed less pain medication than the people who were facing a brick wall. Yes. That's amazing. It is amazing. It's sort of, but you know, I think the fact that it's amazing to us and maybe that's stupid. Just, no, no, maybe no, that's no, stupid. No, like, it isn't. Like maybe it's like dove. It isn't. Stated. No, it isn't. I think the fact that it's amazing to us, to me, shows just how how much we have in, absorbed the idea that our surroundings are irrelevant. Right, that we have sort of been trained to believe that all joy and happiness really comes from within, and that it doesn't, you know, have any relationship to our surroundings. When in fact, you know, I mean, there's so much on nature. I mean, this, there's a really interesting study um, done in uh, housing developments in Chicago, and uh, they looked at aggression and um, and crime and violent crime, and they found that, um, you know, they took. A, a project that had identical buildings that had all been planted with the same amount of nature initially, the same amount of trees, but some of the developments over time had been poorly maintained, so the trees had died, and so they had just been turned into concrete lots. So you could sort of look at these, compare these different buildings, and they were basically identical circumstances, but some had more nature than others, and they found that violent crime was lower and that aggressive impulses were lower, um, even in, intrafamily aggression um, and irritability. Um, uh, that you know, we really behave differently depending on the the quality of our surroundings. But we've sort of, for I think we maybe we used to know it better than we do now. When we first moved into this apartment, my husband was like, "We need to get a ton of plants." And I was like, "Plant? I have never had a plant yeah. in my life, in my adult life." And he's like, "No, no, it's so important. You got to get plants everywhere." And he, he literally like we like showed up in her her whole hallway was like, "Where are we going to put all these plants?" It was like a forest or something, a jungle. Yeah. Anyway, um, but now I really, you know, we watch them and then they. Okay, we can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use, so I got it, and now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you, and it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a hundred times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. 
Life 360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life 360. Visit life360.com or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. Row and not to be crazy, it sounds like nuts, but there's something really exciting. And then the kids planted their own ones and watched them grow, and they're like, That's the one I planted from that little thing. And yeah, so it's profound. I think plants are, you know, um, one of the simplest things that you can do to bring more joy to your living space, and it is the thing that we underestimate. And I think, you know, no one's done this study on houseplants, but there is research that shows that we underestimate the benefits of a walk in nature, mm-hmm. and that, you know, um, people, you know, they've done studies where they had people walk through a park or walk through a, you know, a, a, a sort of urban area. And they found that people just consistently underestimated how much of a mood boost they would get from that very brief nature walk. Um, so I think the same thing is true with houseplants. We don't think that it's going to have as much of an effect as it does. And I know for me, especially in the winter, to be able to look over and see this greenery in my space when the world outside is brown um, is, is really helpful. Do you think photography can help? Like, I don't, you know, here we are in the middle of New York City. <clears throat> my cousin, my second cousin, lives in Crested Butte, Colorado, and just posted on Instagram, like, I can't believe this is the view from my morning walk. And I'm like, are you kidding? That is amazing. It was like the <laughs> most gorgeous thing. And I'm thinking about my morning walk past, like, Dwayne Reed, and, yeah. you know, like, like pushing through people, getting off the subways so I can, like, get back to my house. Anyway, um, you know... I don't, obviously we can't like recreate that here without all moving, which we're not going to do. So one thing I've tried to do is buy photography that represents sort of aspiration, like where I'd want to be or uh, views more like that. But do you think that the shortcut works or you think you actually have to be in nature? I think it's pretty good. I think, you know, there is some, you know, so for example, there are studies that show that in prisons when, you know, they had uh, in this one study, um, researchers had prisoners, inmates in a a, uh, prison look at nature videos and just exposure to nature videos reduced violent incidents wow. by, I think, 26%. So um, just having some exposure, it doesn't necessarily... Uh, plants do something special because they have other... They change the... They have other sensory modalities than just the visual. Right. You know, so they change the humidity. Um, they move. Uh, so there's something dynamic, you know, especially some plants that sort of open and close at uh, during day and night. Um, so I have this purple oxalis that I love and its leaves sort of open in the morning and then close at night. Um, and of course they grow. So they have sort of a dynamic aspect to them, which is beneficial, but um, even just having uh, the textures or the, the um, visual elements of nature do help. Yeah. So let's talk about the 10 components of joy um, that you list in the book. And thank you for all the worksheets in the back, by the way. That's also amazing. So if you're buying the book, don't forget in the back that there's a a list in case you forget or you need examples. But um, so the components of joy are energy, abundance, freedom, harmony, play, surprise, transcendence, magic, celebration, and renewal. 
So can you give me a quick a quick example or sure. explanation? Energy. Yeah. Um, so energy is the aesthetic of color and light. Um, it's obviously the first thing that we see when, you know, looking at joy, when people just immediately go to bright color and celebrations around the world always have, it almost seems like the more, the brighter the colors, the more intense the joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it doesn't have to be any particular color, but brightness as a dimension is usually understood uh, to be joyful across cultures. Um, so energy, um, abundance, abundance. Um, so abundance is the aesthetic of multiplicity and variety. Um, it's, uh, like confetti. Um, so, you know, when you have one confetto, which is the singular of confetti, um, one confetto isn't very joyful, but when you multiply it, um, suddenly it becomes joyful. And so polka dots are another example of this phenomenon, um, where it's just, just one circle, but when you multiply it, it's suddenly joyful. Uh, freedom. So freedom is what we were just talking about with all the plants and the nature. So it's the aesthetics of nature and open space and wildness um, and why we're particularly attracted to those things. Harmony. Harmony. So harmony. It's a quiz. Speed yes. quiz. Yeah, I know. It's fun. It's speed round. Um, so if you've ever been uh, found joy in like a perfectly organized closet. Yes. Yes. That is harmony aesthetic. So harmony is all about symmetry and balance and uh, repeating patterns. And uh, one of the reasons we find joy in that is that it creates a sense of order that allows us to spot opportunities and threats. So if you think about our ancestors huh. in there, you know, out in the world, the more chaotic a visual environment the more work that the brain has to do on a regular basis to scan to try to understand what might be coming out at us um, or what we might be able to find in terms of food or uh, shelter or other opportunities. So, um, you know, when we reduce the visual noise by adding order, symmetry and balance um, and and pattern, uh, that gives our brains sort of a chance to rest that allows other things to come to the fore. My babysitter reorganized our art closet for the kids, not even a closet, cabinet, and like labeled it, got like bright blue like container store things and I was like oh, this so is every time I look at it I'm like this is so amazing yeah. it's just one little cabinet and yeah anyway the fact that it's organized is yeah. like amazing so uh, uh, play. play play is the aesthetic of so when I was first um, I mentioned that round shapes were one of the things that I first noticed and then as I started to look at it I realized that many of these round shapes uh, occur in childhood so almost all of the objects of childhood hula hoops and balls and um, balloons and merry-go-rounds and carousels. I mean, the list goes on and on of things that are round. And even children are round. You know, they're like <laughs> rounder versions of adults with big round eyes and round faces. Um, and that's by design. They have more body fat, you know, so they are uh, naturally rounder. Um, and, and being round makes them cute. Um, and that's another thing that I talk about in this chapter. Um, but but uh, Not as cute on me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that, um, you know, the... Can, there's a, an innate connection between round shapes and playfulness, and those things bring out uh, playful behavior in us. Um, surprise. Surprise. Um, so this is the aesthetic of contrast and the unexpected. So um, surprise is one of the simplest mechanisms of surprise is hide and reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, when we, you know, may, when we wrap a present for someone, that is using the surprise aesthetic. You're concealing something so that it can then be revealed, and you can do this in your home in lots of different ways. Um, by uh, we have it in, in our um, house. We have the, uh, inside the closet um, cabana stripes painted on the back of the closet. Oh. 
Ooh. when you open the closet, it's there and it's the kind of thing because you're not seeing it all the time. You sort of tune it out and then you open it and you get the reminder. Um, so anytime you can do that with, you know, drawer liners, you can do that in clothes with like wonderfully colored linings and clothes. Um, so there are lots of ways to do that one. Transcendence. Transcendence. So transcendence is all about the fact that our emotions seem to lie on this vertical spectrum. So, you know, we talk about when we're feeling um, sad, we're down or we're heavy hearted. And mm-hmm. when we are joyful, we are uh, lighthearted or we are on cloud nine or walking mm-hmm. on air. Um, so all of those metaphors track to the fact that, um, you know, we are all subject to one very pervasive force, which is gravity. And gravity defines the the arc of our lives. And so anything that sort of escapes gravity, um, hot air balloons and uh, tree houses, because they're elevated, and um, the, the ceilings in many um, cathedrals, um, all of that sort of gives us this, this lightness, this feeling mm-hmm. of lightness, um, which correlates to joy. Magic. Magic. Okay, so magic is the aesthetic of things that we can't quite put our finger on. Um, it is the the aesthetic of things like fireflies and, um, you know, when light is shattered by a, a prism, um, the sort of light of rainbows that you can't quite touch. Um, and, uh, you know, we always think that there's like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but you can never find it because you don't know where it ends. That's a classic example of magic because we, we can't pin it down. Um, and magic aesthetics often have the effect of creating a feeling called wonder, which is sort of like a joy. It's sort of between joy and awe and surprise. And that wonder um, is sort of one of the things that fires up our curiosity. So magic is often connected to scientific discovery. <laughs> Uh, celebration. Celebration. So celebration is the aesthetic of um, what happens when people come together in joy. So joy is um, an, a highly contagious emotion. And when we celebrate, um, we are sort of transmitting joy uh, to each other and, um, and among each other. And so uh, that aesthetic, one of the main things um, is bursting shapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our bodies burst open. And if you ever see fans at a sports game, when their team scores, their arms go up and their bodies sort of open up and um, we often find other things that pop or burst in celebratory contexts like champagne and fireworks and sparklers um, all have these radiating uh, or popping shapes <laughs> last one renewal yeah, renewal renewal is the aesthetic of um, blossoming and growth and expansion and it has to do with um, uh, creating a feeling of of movement and potential in our lives and it has to do with the fact that you know um, I think we often pursue this idea of happiness that is fixed and constant but that's not actually how our emotions work our emotions are more like a wave and joy is like a wave and so you know we um, we catch a wave and it rises and then you know it sets us back down and in those spaces between what can we do to actually feel like joy is coming back so it has a lot to do with tapping into seasonal joys and cycles and things like you know you talked about your kids joy when they see the plants growing mm-hmm. um, so things that um, move and change and grow are um, signals of renewal well, congratulations. You have passed the test <laughs> of your own book. I'm glad uh, you're officially an expert <laughs> in this theory of joy. Thank you for okay, that. I'll get the medal ready for later. I'll make sure it's round and sparkly and <laughs> wrapped in a pretty bright color. Um, <clears throat> so what I, one of the things that I love about this, all your ideas 
is that it seems so easy all of a sudden to incorporate little things, big things into the day, into the house, into the desk that can literally like change our moods. Um, and it just, it's something you can easily control. Whereas I feel, you know, achieving happiness is so elusive and dependent on so many things. But this is like for a control freak like me, this is like perfect. Okay. I can like make a list. So what are some of the things to put on the list easy for people listening and me and what are some things to do to make your, you know, your, your environment at home or any place to, you know, more joyful. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a good point. I do feel like, you know, right now the, maybe it's the past 10 years, what we've been sort of taught about happiness has made it feel really hard. It's made it feel like, um, you know, it has to be a discipline and a practice as opposed to, um, actually letting ourselves feel something mm-hmm. and creating the conditions to make it easy to feel something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, um, I mean, there's so many things. One, obviously color. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of us have, um, I know for me, certainly with my wardrobe, I went through a phase where I wore only black and gray because it was easy and it all matched and it was simple. Um, but just bringing color back into my wardrobe, bringing a little bit of it, it into my home, um, painting your front door, I think, is uh, a really good one. Um, anything in your entryway has extra impact because it's the last thing you see before you go out into the world, and it's the first thing you see when you come home. And so that has sort of knock-on effects um, for how you face uh, the world and then how you face your family at night when you come home. So having joy there, I can't paint my front door in my apartment building, um, but I have a light fixture that is um, made of different, it's like bubbles of different colors of glass and it uh, casts reflections onto the walls around. Um, so that's like a little, I love walking in the door and turning that on. Um, so and that's a I'm, simple thing. I'm just noticing your nail polish that you have a different color on every nail mm-hmm. in a rainbow. That's awesome. Very simple. So I that's another I'm very simple thing to, you can do. Uh, do this on my daughter. I have it on the toes. And on the toes. Yeah, I have it on the toes too. Um, yeah, that's a simple thing I started doing um, because, you know, you're sitting at your computer and you're looking at this thing all day and, you know, you look down at the keys and it's nice to see um, this sort of little, it's like confetti. Um, it's a little piece of ab- abundance. Um, we talked about plants. I think that's obviously one of the most important things you can do. Um, I think the harmony aesthetic is actually one that's really easy to achieve and there are lots of ways you can do it. Um, so, uh, one of the, th- the things that I like to do is, uh, look for objects of different colors that might be around my home and mm-hmm. gather them together. Um, so, you know, if you have three blue books and I remember there was a period of time I had two blue matchbooks from a restaurant and I had, you know, a, a candle and I sort of brought them together and all of a sudden it was this cohesive mm-hmm. thing. It was just, um, they were, it was, when they were all separated, they looked like junk. But when you bring things together that have some common element, um, they look joyful. Similarly, I think you can do that with things that you, you know, things that you collect or things that you find by arranging them in a grid, even if it's just sort of out on a tabletop somewhere. Um, you know, if you find pine cones or fall leaves or whatever it is and actually just sort of lay them out, um, uh, you know, with an attention to their commonalities and using sort of, uh, you know, um, Symmetry, you know, uh, rules of symmetry. Um, mm-hmm. So just arranging them in symmetrical arrangements uh, brings a lot. And of how joy. would you do? Um, how would you do like a car makeover? Because I spend a lot of time oh. in the car 
right? The interior is black. Yeah, that's a really Especially good question. Scene. How could you how could you do that? I don't know. I haven't thought about the car in a while. Um, you know, one thing that um, so there are a couple things. One is um, there are certain spaces that are really ripe for surprise. So the glove compartment, I think, is like a space that could be turned into a space of surprise. I think there's okay. like the center console. So um, I just found that. <laughs> I've had so many car seats in the car, and I moved stuff around. I was literally driving home the other day. It's like I pulled this thing down, and the kids are like, what is that? There's a cup holders. One of the the things that um, I love to do is actually hide little souvenirs um, in, like, I hide them in my coat pocket. So if I'm taking a walk on the beach and I have, you know, a vest on, I'll put a shell in there. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, the next time I put it on, um, I sort of find that shell. So I think you can do the same thing in the car is sort of like hide little things so that you see them and they bring you joy. Um, So that's one thing. Um, I think. Uh, certainly bringing color in some capacity, whether that's, you know, um, pom-poms from the rear view mirror or something, as long as it's not distracting. Um, so yeah, bringing color, it's hard to bring nature in, obviously, into the car. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think looking for ways to bring color and surprise, that was, that's what I would be looking for. Okay. I'll work on that. Yeah. The car's a tricky one, um, but the good news is you're moving. So many people so, spend so much time in the so car. So much time in the car. I should do a full car makeover. Do a full I, car makeover? No, I should do a car makeover. That'd yeah. be fun. Yeah, that would be really car. fun. Okay. <laughs> Deal. I Really? Yeah, the, we'll the, do kids it. would love we'll it. Do it. It yeah. would be so fun. Yeah, well, maybe. Really Let fun. me check on the house. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I mean, that's another area I feel like car manufacturers don't... They don't think about it at no. all. Yeah. I mean, that's hard to appeal to... But when you do see one of those, even on the outside, a car that's painted in such unique colors. Oh, or, it's wonderful. So Yeah. Um, so let's go back to the book, if you don't mind. I'm, like, really sure. curious how this happened. Yeah. So you had the blog. Someone just say, amazing yeah. ideas, will you write a book? Or did no, you decide to write a book? that's or what not happened? how. <laughs> did they roll a red I know that a lot of people that happens that that was not how this happened. Um, I knew that I wanted to write a book because I knew that, you know, I was blogging about this and I was writing about it on a regular basis. But when you have sort of an overarching framework and you have a lot of research, it's hard to communicate the overall idea. Um, so you're just communicating in little pieces and it's hard for anyone to understand the full breadth of it. So I knew that I wanted to write a book. I really felt like, um, what I had uncovered helped me see the world in a different way. And I wanted other people to have that. Um, but, uh, so what I started doing was I started just gathering research. I would read books and then I would, you know, see things. I had, um, another inspiration board where I had these little files for my index cards and I would take notes on index cards and gather them for each aesthetic Mm -hmm. as I was seeing it. And, I did that for, you know, eight years. I mean, for a really long time, that process went on. And eventually, you know, uh, one thing led to another. I found um, a really great agent who understood the book. But I think, you know, I'm really grateful that I waited because had I sort of pushed to write this sooner, I don't think it would have been as rich. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had, you know, so much of a book like this because it's, a different lens on something that everyone it's just about the world around us we all and it's about happiness and joy and these are things that we all have a lot of you know 
first of all, we ha- all have our own experience of the world, so that's sort of natural to us. And we all have, you know, we've all read a ton about happiness, um, whether we want to or not. It's in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere we look. So um, to have a book like this that sort of connects the two, it takes a while to find the stories. So it takes a while to find, you know, for example, that like Florence Nightingale believed in this. You know, I didn't know that. Um, and I didn't find that till like year nine, you know, that I was working on this. So, um, so it was a really a process of gathering. And um, uh, yeah, eventually I found the right agent, I found the right publisher, and at that point it felt right to sort of bring it into the world and, and divert my focus to it full time. And so is that what you're doing now? Yeah, so I'm focused on really thinking about how to scale and mm-hmm. connect, right? So this idea, I think there are a lot of people out there doing things um, in schools, in hospitals, who are sort of starting to see the need for this, yeah. um, but who maybe don't have access to this research because the research has been in many, many different labs. Um, so it's trying to bring that together, um, looking at uh, how to bring this into the deeper into the field of design, um, and and then how to, you know, it may be through courses. I'm not sure yet, um, but I think there's awesome. going to be an educational component, and I think there's going to be a product component because for Good. me, yes. You I I'm excited to get back to my design roots and actually start putting uh, some of what's in here into practice. That would be great. Yeah. So I feel like this is like going to be a revolutionary thing. I hope that everybody, I mean, I'm sure they will, but I really want people to read this book (laughs) and like get on board with this because it's just going to make all of us smile. And what's better than that? Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Thank you. So I'm, I'm rooting for it. Thank you so much. I'm going to do my little proselytizing <laughs> bit. To, anyway, thank you for coming. I know we've talked for a while, but thank uh, you so thank much you for so having much for me. On this was a joy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so by Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness by Ingrid Fatelli. Okay, thanks. Bye. Today's episode has been sponsored by Nini's Treats, N-E-N-E-S, Nini's Treats, Available online and also at goldbelly.com. You won't leave a crumb. Try these delicious crumb cakes.